Philemon is where we turn right before Hebrews. You'd think if Philemon and, or the letter that Paul wrote to Colossians, the Colossian church and the one that he wrote to Philemon would be more close together, but they aren't. There's a reason for that. Uh, But Philemon is right before Hebrews in our New Testaments. And we have... Just to finish that thought, I guess, we have the order of the letters of Paul from longest to least, or longest to shortest, I suppose, but those that are are to churches first, so we have the the letter to the Romans, the Corinthians, the Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, then we have, and then we have Thessalonians, of course, then we have 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus, so those are the letters that Paul wrote to individuals, and then Philemon, of course, so right after 2nd, right after Titus, rather, is Philemon. Uh, Philemon is the shortest of Paul's letters, and yet it is not the least of which. It is his most personal letter. Maybe if you don't mind, if you don't regard Second Timothy as a very personal letter, it is. It's to Timothy, but it also has more reference to the church. In fact, early on, this letter that Paul wrote to Philemon was... Well, it was both received as an apostolic-inspired writing, but it also was rejected by various people who thought, well, there's, there's no doctrine in this. There's nothing that really advances our faith. And yet it does. It teaches us what does, the, what does our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ look like, especially when you have been wronged, when you are in the right, when you have these, these expectations of, of other people in your family, in your household, and things go sour and go south, and you have disappointment, and you have... Uh, a rejection of you, and you have a violation of trust, and you have all these things going on, what does the gospel of Christ mean in that situation? And so Paul's letter to Philemon is helpful to teach us what does it look like to live as a Christian when things don't go your way. And so looking at this letter, Paul is writing uh, this letter. In fact, let me just read these first few verses here. Kind of makes sense as we look into the scripture. Verse 1, there's only one chapter, so you just forget the chapter. Say Philemon 1 or Philemon verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Apphi, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, as is customary in a New Testament era, first century Roman world, uh, letter writing anyway, identifies himself as the author first. That's the first word. Any of his letters has his name uh, there as the first word. I can't think of an exception right off the bat. You might find an exception. I think normally that's where we see his name written. And usually he has a sentence or two, or a phrase rather, about who he is. Here he identifies himself not as an apostle, not as a slave, but as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And so he identifies himself in this way to endear himself. And this, this is a repeated uh, identification of himself. I think three or four times throughout this letter he identifies himself. I'm the prisoner of Christ. I am in chains for the gospel and, and these different things. Here he he makes that point to, I don't think to play the, the sympathy card and say, hey, you know, Philemon, I'm really having a hard time here and I'm in prison and everything. I think it's to humble himself in the sight of, of Philemon. He could have played his apostle card and said, I'm an apostle, listen to me, I'm telling you something, you better do it. He doesn't do that. He appeals to him, and you'll see that as we go through this letter. He is exhorting him to to act out his salvation, to act out his his Christian faith in a way that is uh, sound and honorable and 
advancing of the gospel in the church in Colossae, but also throughout. Did Philemon follow Paul's advice? Well, the question is, would we have this letter retained for us after 2,000 years if Philemon didn't follow through on what Paul had asked him to do? I don't know. It's kind of hearsay. It's a supposition. We don't know what it is. But we have this written for us, recorded for us, as a testimony to what Paul uh, did in that first century world. You realize that Paul was so profoundly useful in God's advancing of the church in the old country, if you if you don't mind, back in Jerusalem even. I know he persecuted the church and all. We'll get into that in just a moment. But he advanced the gospel in Syria to the north. He advanced it in Asia Minor. We'll look at some maps here in a minute. He advanced it even into Europe, modern-day um, Greece and uh, Macedonia, maybe even up into Albania, modern-day Albania, Illyricum it was called back in that day, into Rome as well. Maybe he wanted to go to Spain. Did he go to Spain? We don't know. He had a period of time after his, his first Roman imprisonment. But anyway, who is this Paul? We looked at him more intensely when we started Colossians as a study, and you can go back and listen to that uh, sermon from actually two years ago. But his name is Paul. We think, well, wait a minute, wasn't he called Saul? And did he change his name? Well, as we learned with John, Mark, back he mentioned in Colossians chapter 4, John John is a Hebrew name. Mark is a, is a Latinized or, or Greek name. He's known as both. In the same way, Paul is the, his Greek name, but Shaul or Saul is his Hebrew name. He was, if you look at Philippians chapter 3, he lists kind of different things about him. And he mentions that he is of the tribe of Benjamin. You think, Benjamin, why does he mention that? Well, it, it's kind of helpful to know who he, who he is and where he came from. He says in, in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 5 that he was all of his pedigree, right? Circumcised the eighth day of the nation Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. And maybe you could say the most notorious member of the Benjamite clan is King Saul, the first king of Israel. And so people, you know, for good or for bad, he was chosen by God for, for specific purposes. And a lot of young boys born into the Benjamite clan are named Saul. So that's where he gets his name. And he mentions some other things uh, here in Philippians 3 as well. Uh, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness, which is found in the law, found blameless. And so he identifies all of his spiritual pedigree, his heritage. And yet if you went on in that passage in Philippians 3, that's rubbish. That's garbage. That's trash. In comparison to what Christ has done for me, my identity in Christ. I, you know, I appreciate what I am, who I am, where I came from, but it's Christ that saves me. Christ is my assurance. Christ is my confidence. Paul is mentioned here, as he does throughout his letters, as this author. He wrote approximately a quarter, a little less than a quarter of the New Testament. Uh, the one who wrote more than him is, is Luke, actually, his, his co-worker, his uh, trusted ad, uh, um, associate, his, his beloved physician, as he says back in, Philippians, or in Colossians 4. But here he mentions also Timothy, our brother. Paul had a lot of associates through his life, and Timothy was one who was, was uh, closest to him, often his right-hand man, often the one who went to specific tasks, whether in Ephesus or Philippi or Corinth and had these specific roles to play. Uh, Paul is, is writing this letter to identify or to, to 
explain the return of a man. We mentioned, we saw him back in Colossians chapter 4, this man Onesimus, this man who's named, whom uh, was a native or somehow a resident of Colossae, and as we find out as we go through this letter, was a slave in the household of Philemon, and yet had run away, had fled from his, his master's service, and most likely stole or, or uh, took some of the property of his master's household and went to Rome. You think, why did he go to Rome? Colossae wasn't a major city. The next major city, largest city beyond that, besides locally, is Ephesus, about 100 miles away. And that is where Paul ministered for three years. That's probably where Philemon came to faith. It's probably where some other things happened that, 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 that knitted uh, Paul's heart together with this man Philemon. But Onesimus did not run to Ephesus because it's too close to his master's household. Probably, you know, we don't know. We're suggesting these things. But he went to Rome. Why did he go to Rome? Because that's the largest city. You want to uh, disappear somewhere. It's interesting, by the way. You watch all these movies and so forth, and when people get in real trouble, where do they run? Away from people. Don't do that. If you're in trouble, you run to people. Especially, let me just give this public service announcement. If you are a child in a, in a, uh, and you're separated from your parents, you go find, as my mother, my mother, as my wife often says, find a, a mother. Find a, a lady who is a maternal person that will take you and protect you. Don't run to the woods. Don't run to an abandoned train station. Don't all these, you know, figure the movies out. But you run to people. And that's what Onesimus did. He ran to Rome. Millions of people there. And lots of slaves. Uh, some suggested a third of, of the population of the Roman Empire in that time, that first century, was slaves, or were slaves, whether prisoners of war or um, kidnapped, which is illegal, of course, but or born into slavery. Probably most people were born into slavery and continued that. Paul writes this letter to explain why is Onesimus coming. Tychicus is bearing this letter to the Colossian church, also bearing this letter to Philemon, a man, and we see him listed here. He was explaining the request that he had to receive Onesimus back, not to do what, what Philemon was entitled to, to do as a master. He could have killed Philemon. He could have executed him even by crucifixion. He could have ordered that death. And Paul says, don't do that. He has become a, a faithful follower of Christ. He is a beloved uh, brother of mine. He, I'm sending my own heart back to you, and I trust that you will, will receive him, not as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, just as I have come to, to recognize him. So we see this issue of forgiveness. We see an issue of reconciliation dealt with here. We also see, and, and this may rub your, your hackles the wrong way, or whatever uh, about slavery and how the New Testament speaks about slavery. Do you realize one of the most repeated identifications of the Israelites in the Old Testament is, hey, remember you were slaves in Egypt and therefore you show kindness to the stranger. You be hospitable. You be generous with other people. You, uh, you remain humble, knowing that you don't deserve what, what elevated station I have granted to you. You, are a sl you were a slave. Now you're my slave bond slave of Christ. And Paul references that too. I may not be a slave like Onesimus is, but I am a slave of Christ himself. Even when he says here in Philemon verse 1, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, well, he's literally speaking a prisoner of Rome and prisoner of Caesar because he's appealed his case. We'll get into that history in just a moment. Appealed his case to Caesar, and now he's a prisoner waiting that, that trial and the judgment that Caesar will render at some point. But he says, 
I don't consider myself a prisoner of Rome. I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus himself. And whatever he wants to do with me, I will do. If he wants me to stay here in this jail, this house arrest, I'll do that. If he wants me out, I'll do that. If he wants me to die for for the sake of the gospel, that's fine too. I don't consider my life as something special or something that I have to hold on to. I have died uh, to this world, and I am a prisoner. I'm bound together with him. And so he says for Philemon also, remember who you are in Christ. You are, you are a slave of Christ. You're a master, you know, societally speaking, but you are a slave. You do what Christ wants you to do. Paul again, could have identified himself as an apostle, but he wants this appeal uh, not to be forced or or mandated as an apostolic authority. Well, again, who is this man, Paul? Paul is, is uh, one of the most popular, one of the most notable characters in, in uh, the New Testament, and we can re- learn much about what he has done thankfully, by looking at maps. Maps. You have maps in the back of your book, um, back of your Bible, and these are some other ones that you can look at. It helps us to understand where, who is this guy? Paul was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, up in the corner of the Mediterranean, the northeast corner of the Mediterranean. I would show you on with an arrow, but I, I can't do that. It's kind of like singing and playing piano at the same time. I can't do that. I can chew and walk at the same, chew and walk, chew and talk. Whatever that saying is, I don't know, I can't think of it. But Paul is there, born in Cilicia, and was a Roman citizen from birth, which is a notable thing. Came in handy on multiple occasions for Paul's uh, Paul's life. We met, read in Philippians chapter 3 about his Hebrewness, about his being a, born of Benjamin, and so forth. But he is one who was a persecutor of the church, as he mentioned there in Philippians 3. I, I persecuted the church, I brought ruin and destruction upon us, what I was intending myself to do. He was a Pharisee, which is the religious people, the conservatives, the ones who are serious about following God, the ones who are serious about following God's law. He studied in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. Gamal, uh, Jerusalem is down toward the bottom of the map. You see the Dead Sea down portrayed there toward the bottom center of the map. And under Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, rather, he studied under Gamaliel, who was a great rabbi, very revered, respected Pharisee. He may have lived with his sister. Why do we say that? Because his nephew came and helped him out of jail one time, or out of uh, difficult uh, distress. It was during that time when he was in Jerusalem. Was he at Christ's crucifixion? I don't know, but he was at Stephen's death. Stephen's, not crucifixion, but his stoning. And from that day on, uh, Acts chapter 8 talks about the persecution that just kind of just erupted through Saul's hands. And he began persecuting the church, even so far as going to Damascus. Damascus and Syria, you know, a long way away, trying to find those who followed Christ. And during that time, of course, Christ revealed himself to Saul, still known by his Hebrew name there, and changed his life. You can read about that in Acts chapter 9. I won't belabor the point, but this Paul had a, you know, literally the first Damascus Road experience. We often talk about that, uh, coming, people share their salvation testimonies. I didn't have a Damascus Road experience, or I did, or what? Paul did, and that was the original one. And Christ revealed himself at noonday, a bright light shining far brighter than the sun, appeared to him and blinded him, and then they had to be led into Damascus. And and he was uh, rescued from lawlessness. He thought he was a lawkeeper, but then he realized, no, I've broken the law, and I am guilty, and I don't have any standing before God except what I have found in Christ. He is that Messiah. He began preaching Christ in Damascus early on. This is probably a few years after 
the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Christ, probably in the in the mid 30s, maybe even up to 36, uh, uh, AD 36, where Paul is was saved and then starts preaching the gospel, but then went down into Arabia. So farther south on that map, you can see where it says Nabatea or Arabia. He was there for 10 years. And what in the world were you doing down there, Paul? Receiving direct revelation from Jesus. One of the tests of an apostle is, have you seen the risen Christ? All the other apostles had, even that one who took the place of, of Judas, had seen, had witnessed the resurrection, resurrected Christ. They're apostles, they're witnesses of that resurrection. And so that was a necessary requirement. Did Paul see the resurrected Christ? Yeah. Saw him on that Damascus Road time, but also as he was learning theology, relearning theology. Remember, he was he knew the scriptures. He was a Pharisee, and yet he needed to know Christ in the scriptures. He was blinded by his own his own sinfulness, his own well, not his own sinfulness, his own spiritual pride, his self righteousness. He needed to recognize Christ is our righteousness. Christ is the end of the law for all those who believe. He had his first trip to Jerusalem. Uh, recorded in uh, Acts 9 and Galatians 1, speaks about that. He goes back to Tarsus for a number of years, and during that time, um, Barnabas, of whom we have heard a lot about, goes to or went to retrieve him and took him to Antioch. You see these different arrows that come together at Antioch in the northern, north, uh, eastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea there, Antioch of Syria. <coughs> He is sent from there, was sent on the first missionary journey. And you think, all these arrows and all these places, what do they even mean? It shows the advancement of the gospel. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and even to the uttermost parts of the world. It started in Jerusalem. You can read Acts 1 through 7 and 8, the gospel going forward into uh, in Jerusalem, but then you see it advancing into Judea and Samaria. But even in Acts 8, we see how it went down to Ethiopia. Remember that guy who was reading Isaiah 53 and didn't know what he was reading? And Philip went and evangelized him. We see it in Acts 10, how it went to Caesarea, which was then the uttermost parts of the world. Caesarea was a pagan city. Caesarea on the coast, you can kind of see it there on the in the map, Caesarea was a very Hellenized city. It was the capital. It's where the where Pontius Pilate and the other bigwigs of the Roman Empire would go, and and it was it was modeled after Rome. It had the pagan temples. It had all the all the wicked accoutrements of of Romanosity, and yet. The gospel went forward there. Peter going to Cornelius's house. Cornelius, a centurion, a leader of, of the Roman army, is there and was praying to God, and you can read that in Acts 10. But the gospel begins to go forward from Antioch to the west and into Asia Minor. Paul went to these cities of Antioch of, of uh, Pisidia and then to the cities of Derby and Lystra, where he encountered, maybe in that first missionary journey, missionary journey, or definitely the second one, this young man named Timothy. Timothy, who was the, the wonderful associate of Paul for the rest of his life and beyond. Paul also went, well, from that time, he went back into, into um, back to Antioch. In the middle of that, Jerusalem Council, I won't belabor all these points, but there was a, a conference in Jerusalem. How, what do you deal with all these Gentile believers coming to the church? A predominantly Jewish church, still sensitive to the Jewish laws and kosher laws and, and, uh, and Sabbath laws and these different distinctives of the, of the Israelite uh, nation, and yet these Gentiles are coming. They don't even, they don't know Moses from, from Apollos, you know, all these, or Apollo. We, he, we, we don't even know what, what do we do with them? 
from our perspective, what do we do with Jewish people in the, from the 21st? The church now is predominantly Gentile. Well, it's because of Romans 9, 10, and 11 that Israel as a nation has been set aside. God is still saving individual Jews. He's still saving the sons and daughters of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And yet, as a priority, as a, a primary part of the church in this century is, is uh, the nations, Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Paul went on a second missionary journey, not with Barnabas, but with Silas, and taking along Timothy, or getting Timothy in Lystra, uh, well spoken of by the brothers. This was not an uh, overseas journey, this was overland journey, and from that time went up to Troas in the far north eastern, well you can see it on this map, north uh, west, center west of this map, Troas on the coast of Asia Minor, and of course was invited into Macedonia. Come and preach the gospel. Come and preach the gospel of Christ in Macedonia. And he did in Philippi and in Thessalonica. And then he went around south into Athens and Corinth, where he spent a number of years ministering the gospel there. He's planting churches along the way. In fact, Acts 14, at the end of the first missionary journey, he said, as they were going through these churches, where they just started churches, where they were going through these cities where they just started churches, he is appointing elders to serve and shepherd these congregations. He's appointing those who will, who will take the role, not really, because apostle is a special role, but the church leader, the one who is the shepherd of the church, these are the elders, these are the pastors, these are the overseers, the bishops that are spoken of here. And he is going through these different churches, very new churches, and yet saying, these guys, or these guys over here in Lystra, these guys in Derby, you need to shepherd the, the church. You need to be careful. Monitor them. Uh, not in the in a weird sense, but monitor and speak the truth to them and and, and shepherd them and, and watch their souls, as Hebrews 13, uh, 17 says. He does that same thing as he goes throughout Asia Minor and up into Macedonia and down into Achaia, ministering the gospel. I think this, this is the second missionary journey. M moving forward into the third missionary journey is where he spends the most of his time in Ephesus. Three years, most likely. Acts 20, uh, verse whatever it is, says that he spent up to three years there in Ephesus. Because it was 100 miles or so from Colossae, that's probably where Philemon heard the gospel. It's probably where Epaphras or Paphras heard the gospel from Paul ministering in Ephesus. Did Paul ever leave Ephesus and go to some other remote areas or, or neighboring areas? Probably. Was he sharing the gospel? Definitely. Did all Asia hear the gospel? Yes, all Asia, which is the, the western part of, of this area, heard the gospel. Paul says, and we understood that he probably didn't start the church in Colossae. That was Epaphras who did that. And yet his influence was profound as he is there. As, as much as, you know, back in the 50s and 60s and 70s and maybe into the 80s as well, you know, Billy Graham was coming to town and you feel his presence months in advance and maybe months afterwards. We, and a lot of times would, a lot of people would measure, you know, that was the year Billy Graham came. Think of Paul, the apostle. This, those were the years when Paul was ministering the gospel in Ephesus, probably from uh, like 53 to 56 uh, in that first century, ministering the gospel. And so many people came to faith. And, and even it says here, Paul says to Philemon, you are my uh, fellow worker, my beloved brother and fellow worker. What a, Philemon had some special task that he was helping Paul with during that time in Ephesus? I don't know, but that was that third missionary journey. Paul went on into uh, Macedonia and Achaia, uh, really 
gathering, gathering a, collection, a collection to take back to the Jerusalem saints, which was recorded in Acts uh, 19 and 20 and 21, went back to Jerusalem, was arrested. You can read all about that in Acts 21, 22. And from that time on, he's under either house arrest or um, just held in Roman custody for five years five years of his life, two years in Caesarea as prisoner, transported um, from uh, Caesarea over to Rome via Malta, spent a winter in Malta, of course, but uh, you can see how he ended up in Rome, which is where he's writing Philemon from. Let me back up to this map, and you can see the, the clear clear uh, proximity of Ephesus and Colossae uh, as that blue blue line is going along his his route, perhaps, as he was going from Antioch in Syria to Ephesus and spent those three years there. But Paul is so useful, again, as I mentioned, so useful in the advancing of the gospel that he is so willing to suffer for the gospel, suffer for Christ, the one who gave his life for him, the one who bore his sin. And again, Paul being a religious Pharisee, you know, if anybody can be saved by works, it would have been Paul, it would have been Gamaliel, and yet we know we're not saved by works, we're not saved by our, our heritage, we're not saved by what we do or we don't do, we're saved by what Christ has done. We're saved by his life, by his death in our place, by his uh, propitiation or his satisfying sacrifice. And you think, well, why is God so angry with sin? Are you kidding me? If you were a holy God, wouldn't you be angry with sin in any shape or form? If you were a holy God, God is a holy God. There's no shadow, no shifting, no wickedness, no uncleanness a part of him. And he, being holy, cannot have any unclean things come into his presence. Something has to happen without sin. Wash, you, you need to get washed up. You need to be changed. And not just washed externally, like taking off dirty garments and putting on clean ones. We need a heart change because our hearts are wicked. They are depraved. They are so far apart from God. We need a new heart, which is what God had promised Israel. If you look to me, you trust me, you love me, you cling to me, you believe me, you obey me, I'll give you a new heart. I'll change you from the inside out, and then your deeds will be righteous, your, your words will be righteous, your countenance will be uh, different. It will be heavenly but it's the change that God makes in our lives. We try to do our things. We try to clean our, ourselves up. We can't do it. It's Christ who has that work. It's not to say we shouldn't try. Having been saved by Christ, saved by, saved by God, now we want to live out our salvation. Now we want to do things that are pleasing to him. We want to be careful. Guard our lips. Don't speak that evil, vile word. We want to be careful where we set our affections, uh, both with people but also with things. We want to be careful that we are, are uh, holy dependent and, and reflecting Christ's uh, glory, Christ's holiness, Christ's righteousness in our lives. Paul was a testimony to that. In fact, there's a, a commentary on the life of Paul, and I forget even the author. I was going to look it up. It's called the Paul, the Apostle of the Heart Set Free. And you think, for a guy who was set free, he was certainly a prisoner a lot of times and a slave. He didn't think of himself as free. He says, I am under compulsion to preach the gospel. But in terms of his heart, he was set free. I don't care what people do to me externally. I can be bound in prison. I can be beheaded, which is what actually likely happened to him. But he says, I don't, I don't consider myself as anything precious to myself. I am willing to lay down myself. But it's the heart that was set free. Do you realize what kind of freedom people have? The, the, the fear of death, for one thing, but the oppression of sin, the, the ruling, the, the competing desires that are going on in our hearts. You come to Christ. 
There's freedom. There's peace in Christ. Paul testified to that. He gave quite a lot of evidence of that in his own life. I mean, if he had reason to be angry about his situation, you know, he was falsely, the whole thing why he was in prison those five years was on a false charge anyway. People that were jealous about what he's doing and his ministry, God-given ministry to the Gentiles, and they're just jealous of that. And Paul says, I don't mind. And even when people were preaching the gospel and says, oh, Paul can't preach the gospel because he's in prison, but we're free. He says, you know, I don't care. You guys want to rub it in my face that I'm in prison. I don't care. As long as Christ is preached. This is Philippians chapter 1. Let me just finish the story with Paul's life, and then we'll go back and look at Timothy briefly. And that is that Paul was likely released from his, what we call the first Roman imprisonment, Acts, by the way, ends with him coming to Rome and, and getting into house arrest. After that, we kind of have to piece some things together from the letters that he wrote after that, which are mainly First and Second Timothy and Titus, how things kind of went. And if you don't mind a reconstruction from that, it is he likely was released from Rome and, and, then, and then was these non-recorded visits, these journeys of Paul. At some point, left Titus. Again, another wonderful co-worker of, of uh, Paul left Titus in Crete. Let me go back to a map where you can see Crete. Crete is that island um, straight south of Greece, if you, if you can see that. Major, major island there. There's no reference of Paul ever going there himself, except on that, that journey. It wasn't a missionary journey. His imprisonment journey to Rome. They stopped over at some harbors there, but likely Paul did not have liberty to go and preach the gospel and start churches. But Titus was sent there, or Paul says, I left you in Crete that you would uh, fix the things that are wanting and, uh, and appoint elders in every city just as I directed you. But then we see that Paul probably went on to Ephesus and left Timothy there. Timothy was sent to that church in Ephesus having issues of its own, just as Colossae was. Very important bulwark or, or uh, standard bearer for the gospel there in Asia Minor, our western uh, modern Turkey, modern day Turkey. And a lot of things were going on. As Paul's receiving reports of what's going on in Asia, he's, he's concerned about what is going on and, and sent Timothy, you know, his, his number one associate, to work there in Ephesus. Probably wanted to go back to Philippi. Philippi, as mentioned in Philippians 4, I think, was one of the, one of the only churches that Paul would, would receive an offering from, a, a financial contribution. And Paul says, you did it more than once. But he wouldn't, you know, he got in a big, Water, big trouble with Corinth because, excuse me, I pronounced that like in Kentucky, Corinth, Corinth, Cor whatever it is, the, the city in Achaia that said, well, you're not a real apostle because you don't take our money. And I, I don't take your money. I, you know, I, I labor with my own hands. I provide with other people. You don't think I'm an apostle because I, I don't take your money? Let me tell you who's taking your money. It's those false teachers. They want your money. They want you. They want everything. I am different from you, from those people. And anyway, the point is that Philippi, he did allow uh, contributions to come. And so he wanted to go and visit them specifically to, to thank them. He probably went to Nicopolis. Titus 3, verse 12 says he's wintering in Nicopolis. Probably went back to Corinth. He mentions Corinth in, in 2 Timothy. Uh, he, he said in Philipp, and Philemon, he, I, I expect to come to you, Philemon, so prepare a place for me. Philemon chapter, or verse 22. And then in Miletus. Perhaps he went to Spain. That was his intended, but he was arrested. Probably suddenly, probably a surprise arrest. Kind of has happened to various other Bible teachers throughout history. Uh, taken in Troas which is up in the northern part of 
Asia Minor, take him back to Rome, and this time he's not getting out except by his death. He was not under house arrest. He was in the Mamertine prison, an underground uh, place that was not a, not a pleasant situation for him. In fact, you remember how he said in Second Timothy, uh, Timothy, when you come, uh, bring the, the books, especially the apartments, and bring my cloak, because I left that with Carpus in, uh, in Troas. He wanted his books to study, and he wanted his cloak to keep warm. He's, he's just a man, just like the rest of us. And he even says in Philemon, I am Paul the aged. So he's, he's you know, the circulation is, is minimal, minimal in, his, in his body, and he gets cold, especially underground there. Paul says in 2 Timothy, all those in Asia have forsaken me or left me. You think, the people in Ephesus, the people in Colossae, Philemon, did he leave you too? Hopefully that's a... A hyperbole. Hopefully he's saying it seems like everybody, and hopefully not Philemon. But the point is, the dangers that were being faced by the church in Colossae, those theological things that were leading people away from Christ in Ephesus, the 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 being like in Revelation chapter 2, the word the, the church in Ephesus, I know your deeds, I know that you are valiant for the truth, but what about your love? You've forgotten your first love. You better repent. Remember the deeds you did at first, repent, and do the things you did at first, or I'm coming to take your candlestick away. Is there judgment then upon those churches in Asia Minor through this? Paul said, Second Timothy, uh, that all in Asia have deserted me or left me. Uh, going on from there, Paul was, was uh, executed by beheading. He had stood his trial, first Roman prison, under the emperor Nero, and now he's back before Nero and is beheaded, killed. How do we know that? Well, Eusebius, a church historian, says, let's see, what does he say? Uh, Paul was beheaded in Rome itself and that Peter likewise was crucified under Nero. And he says the, this account of Peter and Paul is substantiated or proven or confirmed by the fact that their names are preserved in the cemeteries of that place even to the present day. Eusebius records something that Origen, another church, early church guy, said, Paul preached the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem to Illyricum, that's Albania, as I mentioned, and afterwards suffered martyrdom in Rome under Nero. And other various other people mentioned that, that he died. He, so much could be said about Paul, again, but one of the things that he says about himself is just two words. Uh, well, two verses here. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 9, he says, I am the least of the apostles. Of all, you know, Peter and James and John, all those. I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. I'm supposed to build up the church and I persecuted it. I was mean to it. I was ruined, killed people. Uh, I was there with Stephen when he died, the first Christian martyr. And, you know, Christ was Christ. He died not as a, as a martyr for, of people, but, but uh, as a, a substitute for us. But Stephen died as that first Christian martyr. So he's the least of the apostles, but here in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, he says, I am the foremost or the chief of sinners. I just, as Dr. Menton used to say, I'm, I'm the most wicked person I know personally. You think, really, Paul could say that about himself? He's the apostle after all. And he says, I'm the worst of sinners. I'm chief of sinners. Yes, because he never got out of the fact that he, to forget all of his heritage, forget all of his religiosity, Christ died for him. Christ came to, to save him from his own self, from his own self-righteousness and, and foolishness and wickedness and lawlessness. And he is the one who who's changed his life and set him on a course of not just uh, usefulness in the rabbinic tradition, but usefulness in advancing the gospel of Christ. Quickly, this man... 
Timothy, Timothy, our brother, Timothy, the brother. Timothy is mentioned by name 24 times in the New Testament, always in close association with Paul, except that one time in Hebrews uh, that just notifies, notifies us that, hey, notice that, that uh, Timothy has been released with whom, whoever the author of Hebrews is, I'll come to you if, if that works out. But Timothy is mentioned in all these things, perhaps was saved uh, under Paul's ministry in Lystra. But we know about him that he was born into a religious household. He was born with a, a uh, grandmother, Lois, and a mother, Eunice, that had a sincere faith. For 2 Timothy 1 and verse 5 says, he says he should, Paul says to him, you should continue in those things which you have learned as a child, as an infant, and become convinced of. And uh, from childhood, you've known the sacred writings, the scriptures, Genesis through Malachi. He came, he was, his mother was Jewish, his father was Gentile, he was circumcised by Paul, or at Paul's uh, counsel because of his Jewish identity, and because he's going to be uh, ministering among Jews first to the Jews, and of course to the Greeks, and he says, Timothy, you need to be circumcised to uh, show your honor, your appreciation for what God has done in the Jewish people, and show your identification with them. He becomes a faithful co-worker of Paul, a fellow worker mentioned of uh, by the brothers, faithful, beloved, faithful child in the Lord, kindred spirit even of Paul. He had the same, same ambitions, same concerns, same uh, 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 compassion for other people. He was widely known for his proven worth. Philippians 2 and verse 22 says he was faithful in completing the Lord's work. We often think of Timothy as a rather timid soul. Uh, 2 Timothy says, you know, don't, you know, God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but a of a sound, um, however it goes there in 2 Timothy chapter 1. And it says, you need to buck up and do your, you know, play the man kind of thing. Well, perhaps we overplay that that issue that Timothy is, is meek and timid and so forth. Uh, one person said it this way, Timothy is often pictured as a very young man, somewhat sickly, full of timidity, lacking in personal forcefulness. Though there may be some truth to this picture, it's probably also a bit overdrawn. In any case, the exhortations to loyalty and steadfastness in First and Second Timothy are probably the result of the two factors, his youthfulness and the strength of the opposition. He's a young man, Timothy is, which means to say he's even he's between the ages of 20 and 40. He's a young man in that first century world. And he, he, here's Paul, the apostle. He's just powerful. He's whatever. He's doing all these things. And who am I, Timothy could say. I'm just a guy from Lystra of uh, Laconium, southern Asia. And yet here he is in this wonderful position right at the right-hand man of, uh, of Paul. And the strength of the opposition is just so overwhelming. What the positions that Paul put Timothy in, in Ephesus, hey, there are savage wolves coming in. And even from their own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw disciples after them. Acts 20, 28, 27, somewhere in there, where he says that. The opposition is real. And you think, well, maybe he's kind of bucking up, or not bucking up, he's kind of cowering in that. And so Paul says, Timothy, Fulfill your ministry. You finish to the end. I have fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've uh, kept the faith. And Paul says at the end of his life. And so he says, Timothy, you be strong. You suffer hardship. You let no one look down on your youthfulness. You make sure that you um, flee the youthful lust, the pride, and the and the the, the temptations that are are inherent to youthfulness. You do not neglect the spiritual gift that is in you. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Guard what's been entrusted to you. Paul says all these things to, to this man, Timothy. Timothy is with Paul on so many occasions. Uh, what does he say? I think 13 of, of all 
is it all 13? I forget where it's at, where it says where, where Timothy was with Paul. And we read Paul, so-and-so, and Timothy, our brother, to the church in Rome, to the church in Corinth. So Timothy was so closely associated with Paul throughout his life. He was there in the first Roman imprisonment. He wasn't during the second. He was in Ephesus, most likely, and Paul says, come to me before winter. And we read about that in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Timothy probably ministered in Ephesus, probably ministered uh, in Rome. At some point, Timothy was imprisoned himself, uh, but he then suffered uh, and was faithful to the end and finished his life as a witness of Christ. Wherever he was, uh, he was just a faithful man. So Paul says in Philippians chapter, Philemon rather, chapter one, hey, I'm Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus. Here's Timothy. And it says our brother, which is fine to translate it that way. It says... Uh, word for word, it says Timothy, the brother, the recognized brother, the one who is, you know, brother Timothy. We talk about brother Andrew or brother so-and-so. This is the brother. Everybody knows about Timothy. He is so useful in the gospel. Everybody knows about Paul. The thing Paul wanted us to know about him, I'm a prisoner. I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Would I love to be free? Sure, but I'm so glad to give my life for Christ. What is it to, to live 70, 80 years, right? Um, Moses says, Psalm 90, if you continue to read in there, uh, 70 years, maybe if due to strength, 80. But what good is it to live a life for yourself, to, to live for your own uh, comfort, your own glory, your own prestige, having as many kids as you can have, what, getting as much money as you have, getting as many titles, you know, letters after your name, what good does that profit you if you don't have Christ in your life? And you think, well can mean an awful lot. You know, a lot of money kind of is, is useful in this day and age or, or whatever it is. Do you realize that the wisest person in the world, barring Christ, of course, who is the epitome of wisdom and knowledge and all this stuff, Solomon said, I had it all. I had the wealth. I had the fame. I had the reputation. I had the authority. I had the recognition of I mean, the Queen of Sheba came to me and all this. But apart from God, apart from living under the fear of God, it just had a bland taste in my mouth. It was like eating gravel, eating stones, eating eating sand. It's like staring at the sun. And, and you think you're supposed to be in the prime of life, right? Solomon, King Solomon. And he says it was, it was vanity worse than vanity. Yeah, it looked good. And people envied my position. People were trying to, to strive to, to be, you know, kick me out of the, but it's God living in the fear of God, living in the obedience to God's good word. That's what gives life. When all is said and done, Ecclesiastes 12, uh, 13, 14 says, fear God and keep his commandments. That's what the whole thing is about. It's what life is about. You think, oh, it isn't laying up the most toys. And, you know, he who dies with the most toys, well, he still dies. And the toys don't go with you. But you have Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's kind of like what Paul says to the rich guys in 1 Timothy 6. Tell those rich people not to be conceited or put their hope in the uncertainty of riches, but hope in God who gives life. And not just life on earth, but eternal life and this lasting riches. Live, work, you know, meet needs, be able to meet needs of other people. First John told us, if you see your brother in need, give. Be in a position to give. But don't value those things more than Christ. Paul laid down his life. Timothy laid down his life. Philemon, we'll see, we'll meet him, laid down his life for the gospel. Did he die of old age? We don't know much about how Philemon died. But they lived for Christ. And they said, death, that's better yet. 
to go be with Christ. Uh, the whole life of these people was consumed with Christ. How's your life? What's it like? What are you after? Are you trusting him? Are you trusting yourself? You just ignore, you're just living. Live for Christ. Everything else is not just second best, at least to hell, at least to de- destruction, at least to, to God's judgment. Rightly so on those who do not love, kiss the Son. Psalm 2, kiss the Son, lest you become angry, you perish in the way. But how blessed are those who find refuge in him. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the refuge we have in Christ. We're grateful that Paul and Timothy and others were so faithful to preach that gospel, preach that truth, that Christ is our Savior. Christ is that Lord that is not just a, an overbearing master, somebody always looking for fault and somebody always just accusing us, but a Savior, one who delights in his brothers. I mean, even that we should be called the brothers of Christ is just an amazing reality that we are adopted. It doesn't matter if we're born of Abraham or of Absalom or, or not Absalom, um, Ishmael or, or other people that are mentioned in Scripture. It doesn't matter who our parentage is, but who Christ is. And it's Christ in our hearts, in our lives, in our, in our tongue. Uh, we pray that we would live for him. We thank you again for Paul's life, for Timothy's life, for their labor for the gospel. And now having entered their reward, we pray that we would finish our lives well in Christ, always reflecting Christ, always living for his glory, always advancing his um, notoriety, his fame in this world until he comes and receives that which is due him. We are grateful that you've shown us that he is worthy to take up the scroll and to open or break those seals and to take claim of this universe. We pray that that day would come soon where Christ would be all, well, God the Father, God would be all in all. We are thankful. Please bless each one who's here. Please save and sanctify for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.